church, would you please open your Bibles to Psalm 19? We will look at verses 7 through 14. And 1 Timothy 1, we'll look at verses 18 and through 20. 18 through 20. Psalm 19. Psalm 19, verse 7. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let us consider also 1 Timothy verses, chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, which is the sermon text for today. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. In the introductory sermon to this series, I raised the question, why should Christians who are not pastors be concerned about what Paul says to Timothy, his co-worker in gospel ministry? And I think this is a valid question. Paul wrote this letter that we are now studying, not only to a Christian brother, but to a minister. And as a result, much of what Paul says to Timothy has direct application to ministers of the gospel serving within the local church today. But from the start of this sermon series, I wished to convey to you that this letter does apply to all Christians, either directly or indirectly. Indeed, many things are said in this letter that apply not only to pastors, but to all Christians. And even in those portions that apply most directly to pastors, we do find indirect application for the people of God. For example, what Paul says to Timothy, his co-worker, does help every believer to understand what God's will for the church is. What is the nature of the church? What is she to be like? Paul's instructions to Timothy are very revealing. Also, we might ask the question, what is God's will for pastors? What should we expect from them? What is their work? Of course, Paul's letter to Timothy is very revealing. Now, obviously pastors should be concerned with the question, what is God's will for pastors? I think it would be very foolish and even dangerous to enter the ministry without a basic understanding of the answer to that question, but I hope that you would 
agree that every member of every Christian congregation should also be concerned to know God's will for pastors. Every member ought to know what they should expect from their pastors and from their elders. And this knowledge becomes particularly important when it comes time to appoint men to the office of pastor or elder. What are the qualifications? What does the job demand? And I wonder, do you know? Are you familiar with, this, with what the scriptures have to say concerning the job that pastors are to do? What is required of them? How they are to be fitted for this task? Do you know? And by asking these questions, I am implying, of course, that the scriptures have something to say about this. And they most certainly do. The scriptures have not left the nature of the church nor the job of ministers undefined. But on the contrary, when we pay close attention to what the the New Testament says, and particularly to Paul's letters to his co-workers, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, we can see clearly what the work of the ministry entails. So far in this letter, and we are only in chapter 1, we have learned that the work of the ministry entails promoting sound doctrine within Christ's church. This is accomplished both positively and negatively. Positively, sound doctrine must be taught, but negatively, false doctrine must be opposed. We have learned that sound doctrine brings life and peace, but false doctrine leads only to lifeless speculation and ultimately division within Christ's church. So true doctrine must be promoted within Christ's church if she is to flourish, and the whole church is to see to this, but it is the particular responsibility of the minister. In the passage that is before us today, we learn more about the work of ministry. And here we learn that to enter the ministry, one must be called. That those called must be prepared to engage in warfare. And that spiritual warfare must be conducted in faith and with a good conscience. So first, please recognize that to enter the ministry, one must be called. The word called is not found in this passage But this is what Paul describes. He reminds Timothy of his calling when he says, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Here he is reminding Timothy of his calling. The words, this charge, refer back to the charge that began in verse 3 of chapter 1. A charge is simply an order or a command Paul began to order or command Timothy to do certain things as a minister of the gospel in verse 3. He then inserted his testimony to make a point, if you remember. And now Paul resumes his charge to Timothy, saying, This charge I entrust to you. Christ himself entrusted the work of the ministry to Paul the apostle. And then Paul entrusted the work of the ministry to Timothy. And Timothy was to do the same with others. He was to entrust the work of the ministry to them. In 2 Timothy 2.2, we read, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you see a pattern here. The work of the ministry is to be entrusted to faithful men from generation to generation. Elders have a particular responsibility to be sure that this happens, but it is to be the concern of the whole congregation, generally speaking. The work of the ministry is to be passed along from generation to generation, from minister to minister. 
It is to be entrusted to others. And you will notice that Paul again refers to Timothy as my child. Not only is this a term of endearment, and not only does it indicate that Paul was older than Timothy, which he was, but more than this, it reveals that Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. It may be that Paul himself led Timothy to the faith, or it may be that those who led Timothy to the faith were first led to the faith by Paul. But certainly it means that Paul mentored Timothy in the faith. Timothy was Paul's child, spiritually speaking. And here we see, I think, that ministers of the gospel should aim to pass along a spiritual heritage to others. And then we find this phrase, This charge I entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. The meaning is this, Paul's charge to Timothy aligns with or corresponds to the prophecies previously made about him. What were these prophecies? Truth be told, we do not have a record of the details of these prophecies. But clearly they were prophecies pertaining to Timothy's call to the ministry in general or to his call to be a co-worker of Paul in particular. That is what the context demands. We are to think of these prophecies as having reference to Timothy's call into the ministry. Though we do not have a record of these prophecies concerning Timothy, we do have a record of similar prophetic activity within the early church. In the days of the early church, there were prophets who ministered alongside the apostles who spoke God's word under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. There are neither apostles nor prophets in the church today. Their ministry, remember, was foundational and not perpetual. You can see Ephesians 2.20 to, to support this claim. But there were certainly prophets ministering at the start of the New Covenant era, just as there were prophets who ministered under the Old Covenant. These spoke authoritatively. They spoke the Word of God. You might remember how in Acts 21, verse 11, Agabus the prophet came from Judea to Caesarea, and he took Paul's belt and bound it around his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. We know that Agabus was a true prophet, for this is what indeed transpired. Paul was taken into custody. He was imprisoned. He was eventually martyred for his faith in Christ. But this prophecy that was made concerning Timothy was probably more like another prophecy recorded in Acts concerning the ministry of Paul, also called Saul, and Barnabas in Acts 13.1. We read, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Saul, and others. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. So though we do not have a record of the details, we are to understand that similar prophecies were made concerning Timothy. Like Paul, Timothy was called to the ministry by God and through the church. There was prophetic activity that surrounded his call to the ministry. 
I will say a little bit more about how God calls ministers today in just a moment. But for now, consider the effect that this reminder from Paul concerning the prophecies previously made about him would have had on Timothy. Perhaps Timothy was discouraged at this moment. We are to think that he probably was discouraged, maybe overwhelmed with the demands of ministry that he was experiencing there in Ephesus. Perhaps he was fearful. And what a tremendous encouragement this would have been to be reminded of his calling. It's as if Paul said, don't forget your calling, Timothy. It was God who called you to this work. And don't forget that he did so through the church. Take courage, therefore, and persevere in this work. God is with you. God is behind you in in this. He has set you apart to this work. Take courage, therefore. Though it is true that apostles and prophets do not dwell amongst us, God does still set men apart for the work of the ministry in much the same way as Paul, Barnabas, and Timothy were set apart. He calls ministers of the word both inwardly and outwardly. That is, he calls them to his service subjectively and also objectively. When I say that ministers are called subjectively, I mean that a minister must be called inwardly and in the heart, if you will. He must sense that God's call is upon his life, and he himself must desire the work so that he may, to quote Peter, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have him, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Concerning the desire for ministry, Paul begins his list of qualifications for the office of overseer or elder by saying, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So it is not wrong to desire to serve as an elder within Christ's church. On the contrary, it is good for someone to desire to hold this office. In fact, one should not enter the ministry if he does not desire it, for then he would be doing what Peter forbids in that passage that I have just read. He would be serving not willingly, but only because he feels obligated to do so, or maybe for selfish gain. It is important that ministers sense the call of God upon their life, that they, that they receive this call subjectively, and within the heart, that they desire to enter into the ministry. This inward and subjective call is essential, but so too is the outward and objective call. And here I am referring to the call of God that comes to a man through the church. The inward call is applied to the heart by the Spirit. It is called subjective because it is perceived by the man through feelings, But the outward call is applied to the man by the Spirit through the church. It is called objective because this call is not based upon the feelings of the man, but upon the undeniable fact that the church has determined that this man is fit to hold the office of overseer, that they have agreed that the Spirit has indeed called him to the work, and they have even laid their hands on him to set him apart for the work. It is an objective call, one not based upon subjective feelings, but on objective realities. And here in our passage for today, Paul reminds Timothy not of the internal and subjective call that he has received, but the external and objective call. Prophecies were uttered concerning him, 
And presumably the church did what Tim, with Timothy what they did with Paul and Barnabas before him. They fasted and prayed and they laid their hands on him to set him apart for this work. And why do you think Paul reminded Timothy of this external and objective call as opposed to the internal and subjective? Why does he do this? Why does he not say to Timothy, don't forget the way that you felt called to the ministry so long ago, Timothy. Instead, he says, remember the prophecies that were uttered about you. Why does he emphasize this aspect of his call? And I hope that the answer would be clear to you. Our emotions, our desires, often change with the circumstances of life. I would imagine that Timothy often felt like preserving in the ministry, but sometimes he probably felt like quitting, and maybe he felt like quitting in this moment. And in those moments when he felt like quitting, he would benefit most from bringing to mind the external call and not the internal, the objective call rather than the subjective. He would be most encouraged by remembering the feeling, not of his heart, but of the hands of those who ordained him on his shoulders and to remember the words that they spoke. So we are to see here that the Spirit of God works powerfully to set men apart for Christian ministry. And this he does by calling the man inwardly and externally, subjectively and objectively. Both are crucial, brothers and sisters. No man should be ordained to the gospel ministry if he is lacking either of these things. As I was considering all of this and writing the sermon, I started to think, I wonder who the Lord is calling from amongst us to serve as a minister of the gospel, either here at Emmaus or to take a call elsewhere. I pray that the Lord would raise up men from within this congregation to do uh, that very thing. It may be that the Lord would rise up one of our young men to enter the ministry. I know that I began to sense a call to the ministry when I was 16 or 17 years old. That internal and subjective call was confirmed by the church externally and objectively when I was in my early 20s. Too young, I think, to be honest with you. But it was confirmed when I was in my early 20s. And I would say that it was confirmed even more powerfully when we planted Emmaus when I was 30. And it was good for me to spend a little bit of time this past week reflecting upon this, this calling of mine and to also think, I wonder if the Lord is doing a similar work with a young man who has been brought up in this church. It's an exciting thing to think about, that there might be some young people, even children, who are beginning to sense a call to the ministry even now. And I, I think we should pray that he would, brothers and sisters. This should be an item for us to pray about, that the Lord would raise up workers to be sent out into the harvest, workers to minister within Christ's church. It should be a constant prayer of ours as a congregation so that the Christian ministry might be entrusted to faithful men who are able to teach others also. It is an important thing that must take place within Christ's church. It may be that the Lord will raise up a young man, or it may be that the Lord would raise up someone who is more advanced in years, and also this would be a great blessing. But how will we know? How will we know? To put it simply, the man will feel called, and the congregation will recognize that he is called. The current officers and members will come to see that the man possesses the gifts and meets the scriptural qualifications to hold this office within Christ's church. Really, it is not a, a complicated thing. Uh, God still does call men to the ministry in the same way that he did in the days of the early church, minus the presence of prophets amongst us and apostles, but he calls men 
to the ministry, both internally and externally, both subjectively and objectively. And that brings me back to something I said in the introduction. Every member of every church should be very much concerned to know what God expects from pastors. What qualifications does the man have to meet? What gifts must he possess? What does the job itself entail? And it should not be difficult to imagine what a blessing a good minister of the gospel will be to the church and what a curse a bad minister would be. Though current pastors play a significant role in identifying and appointing future pastors, ultimately it is the decision of the whole church. The whole church must agree that the man is fitted and called to the ministry, and only then may the elders lay their hands on the man and appoint him to the office of overseer. You are not passive spectators, therefore, in the ordination process, but you are active participants. The Spirit of God will work through you to call men to a service, and I'm asking you the simple question, are you ready to do that as a congregation? Are you prepared to do that? Do you know what God's word says concerning the qualifications of ministers? To enter the ministry, one must be called. Secondly, those called must be prepared to engage in warfare. This is what Paul says at the end of verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The words that by them indicate that this is what fulfilling his ministry will entail. Timothy will have to engage in warfare. And this might sound strange to someone unfamiliar with the demands of ministry. In fact, I would imagine that the vast majority of those who go into the ministry go in underestimating the warfare that they will face. And the reasons for this are many to come to mind. One, I do think that some are raised in church traditions where ministers of the gospel do not engage in warfare but pursue a life of ease. I was thinking about this and how my wife was raised in a different church tradition and, and she remembers visiting the pastor with her father and would find him with his feet up on the desk reading the newspaper. I don't know how many times it happened, but it happened enough for it to be ingrained in her memory. This was her memory of, of her childhood pastor uh, his feet were up on the desk, and he was reading the newspaper constantly. Now, perhaps the man was hardworking. He may have been. Maybe the timing was just terrible. But that was her impression of Christian ministry for so long. I could tell you that's no longer her view, is it? It's not your view anymore, I hope. But I think that is one reason why so many who go into the ministry underestimate it. Perhaps they were raised in church traditions where... The ministers of the gospel did not engage in warfare, but they did pursue a life of ease. I, I remember a comment made by one of my seminary professors. I doubt it could be tested to see if it is true, but he said, the pastor that serves in your community will either be the laziest man in town or the hardest working man in town, one or the other. I thought that's interesting. It stuck with me. Two, it is really difficult for those not in ministry to, claim, to gain a clear view of what ministry actually entails. And I suppose that this would be uh, true of, of, of any profession. You don't really know what the job entails until you get into it and you, and you get your hands dirty, as it were. But I think it is especially difficult for those not in ministry to gain a clear view of what it entails. 
Uh, maybe the exception would be if the church offers a robust internship program or something like that. Um, but even then, I think it would be difficult to expose a man to the demands of ministry prior to him actually going into the ministry. When do most people see their pastors? When do most of you see me? Sundays. This is my day of rest, brothers and sisters. It really is. <laughs> um, I do so much more than just stand up and preach and teach to you. And I think a lot of people, they look at pastors, stand up on the stage behind a pulpit, and, and they, they preach and they teach, and they say, that, that kind of sounds nice. Some people are terrified of public speaking. It's not what you would like to do. But look at it. It's, it's glamorous, right? You stand up in front of people, and they listen to you talk. This is not all that ministry entails. I, I hope that you understand that. I can tell you, brothers and sisters, that writing sermons and delivering them is light and enjoyable work for me. I don't lose sleep at night over sermons. I don't. I lose sleep over other things. A preaching may be the most important thing that I do, but it is not the most burdensome thing. The Christian ministry involves far more than preaching on the Lord's day. Many years ago, a young man asked me the question. He was a young man then. He's actually uh, older now. And in this church, maybe he'll remember saying this to me as a little a little teenager, he came up to me and he asked the question, so what do you do all week? <laughs> and I remember taking offense to that a little bit. <laughs> Move along, kid. Don't worry about it. He probably thought that I played golf all the time or something like that. But I think it is important for all of us to recognize that ministry is warfare. That is the terminology that Paul uses, and for good reason. It is not over-the-top language that he was using, but language that is accurate. Ministry is warfare. And if you feel called to the ministry, you need to reckon with this fact before you go in. As a member of Christ's church, you also need to pray for your ministers that they would wage the good warfare, as here Paul says that we ought to, and that the Lord would sustain them as they fight the good fight. You ought to pray for those of us who are devoted to full-time ministry, but also for those men who serve as elders while working in the secular realm. Think of them too. Do not forget them. Not only are they bearing the burdens of work and of home life, but they are bearing the burdens of the church as well, and they do bear heavy burdens. Don't forget to pray for them, that the Lord would strengthen them so that they can, bear, uh, that, that, that they can carry those burdens well. I'm reminded of that passage in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul recounts his sufferings as a minister of the gospel. And, and there in that passage, it's a famous passage, he lists his imprisonments, he lists the beatings that he endured along with shipwrecks, he talks about hunger and thirst and many other things that he endured as, as a minister of the gospel, as that great missionary that he was. But then at the end, he adds this little remark, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I remember reading that years and years ago, thinking how strange that he would put these pressures and these anxieties concerning the churches in the same category as beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. Now I understand why he put them in the same category. He carried a heavy burden, being concerned not just for one church, but for many churches, these churches that he had planted along, along the way. Ministers of the gospel will, if they are indeed waging the good warfare and not skating by, be burdened with a deep concern for the church of God. 
And I say all of this to you, not so that you might feel sorry for me or for us. Does it feel that way? I hope it doesn't. Here is Pastor Joe, and he's just having a pity party for himself, you know, uh, from the pulpit this morning. It needs to be said, not so that you might feel sorry for those who are in the ministry. In fact, we are happy to do what we are doing. We are truly blessed to serve the church in this way. By the way, that's true of many of you who have professions that are difficult. Others might look in upon them and go, I could never do that work. But you say, I do it. It is hard work, but I do it with joy in my heart. I love this work. I was made for it. I hope that is the case for you. That is the case for me. I I love to do this work, but I share this with you so that you might pray for your ministers. And when it comes time to appoint new ministers, you might know what the job actually entails. It is warfare. Furthermore, if you sense a call to the ministry, you need to have some idea of what you are getting yourself into. If you are called and fitted, you will happily take up the work. But if you are not called and fitted, I fear that you will languish under the burden. Before we move on to point three, I should probably say a word about the nature of this warfare. What kind of warfare is it? Well, it is clearly spiritual warfare. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.4, For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So there the apostle is most clear. We are not talking about physical warfare here. We are not taking up the sword, physically speaking, but we are taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we are fighting with it, among other weapons that we have at our disposal in Christ Jesus. And who is the enemy that ministers fight against? Who is the enemy? Well, ultimately, the enemy is Satan and his kingdom. You will notice that both he and his realm are mentioned in verse 20 of the passage that we are considering this morning. But the fight is not with him only or even with him directly. Rather, this fight against the evil one manifests itself in many ways. To put the matter very succinctly, the Christian minister must wage war against falsehood. He must preserve and promote the truth. And the minister must wage war against sin, both the sin of others within Christ's church and also his own. Stated yet in another way, the minister must come alongside those entrusted to his care to help them in their fight against sin, all the while fighting against sin of his own. The Christian ministry is warfare. And this leads quite naturally to The third point, to enter the ministry, one must be called. Those called must be prepared to engage in warfare. And finally, this warfare must be conducted in faith and with a good conscience. Wage the good warfare, Paul says, holding faith and a good conscience. In other words, this is what the minister is to bring to the fight. He is to come equipped with faith and a good conscience. Here, faith refers to personal faith and trust in God in Christ, and in the truth of the gospel. How will a minister help others grow in their faith if he himself is weak in faith? And how will he possibly persevere in warfare unless his faith is strong? And when Paul commands Timothy to maintain a good conscience, he means that his conscience is to be kept clear. This means that ministers are to be sure that they themselves are walking in a worthy manner and not in sin. When a minister sins, which all do, he is to quickly repent before God and man. Some sins we know are of a disqualifying nature, but other sins are not. 
A minister must be sure to keep his conscience clear. He must live a holy life, and when he fails, he must repent truly and sincerely. A good minister, a minister who knows what it is to sin against God and others and to repent truly will be well, well equipped to compassionately help others do the very same thing. But a minister who lives in sin or who sins and does not have the humility to repent will only bring harm to those who are under his care. So what does the work of the ministry entail? There are many tasks, and I will not list them all for you this morning, but one task that must not be neglected by the minister is the task of keeping one's faith strong and conscience clear. And I'm afraid that many ministers do struggle when they become consumed with caring for others. They begin to neglect their own soul, their own heart. And this is a very dangerous thing. The conscience is to be kept good and clear, and it is kept good and clear when we walk in obedience to the commands of God. Paul will return to this idea later in this letter, saying to Timothy, as a minister of the gospel, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, this statement that I have just read from 1 Timothy 4, 16 is not a pure repetition of what Paul says here, but the idea is similar. Ministers must not only be concerned for others, but they must first keep watch on themselves to be sure that their conduct is pure. Also, they must devote themselves to teaching the faith that they themselves believe to be true within the heart. Paul warns that those who fail to hold to the faith and keep their conscience clear will make a shipwreck of their faith. And I'm afraid of the faith of others, too. Verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, he says. Paul knew all about shipwrecks. He knew what it felt to be, he knew what it felt like to be tossed uncontrollably, uncontrollably to and fro by the wind and the waves. He knew what it was to be driven ashore and to watch the ship be broken apart by relentless pounding of the surf. I began to imagine this in my, in my mind uh, this past week as I wrote this sermon. And I thought, what a terrible experience this would be. To be on the open ocean in a small vessel and to be tossed to and fro, to realize that the currents were taking you not where you wanted to go, but someplace else, to see... Uh, the, the shoreline approach, to hear the crashing of the waves, to know that there were dangerous reefs before you. Uh, what a terrible experience this would be and what an awful sight this would be to watch a ship that has been beached, broken apart by the relentless waves and also by the wind. And yet this is the term that Paul uses to describe the course of the false teacher who fails to hold to the faith and to keep his conscience pure, it leads to shipwreck, to the total destruction and breaking apart of one's life and faith. How sad it is to watch a professing Christian, and particularly a minister of the gospel, make a shipwreck of their faith. It is an awful sight. In fact, it takes your breath away when you see it. It leaves you with a pit in your stomach, probably the same sort of pit in your stomach you would feel as you watch a shipwreck take place right before your eyes. I've seen it. And I have watched men with good and sound doctrine make shipwreck of their faith because they failed to keep a good conscience before God. 
And Paul warns Timothy to beware of the reefs of unbelief and immorality. Ministers must stay the course. They must keep the wind in the sails. They must steer clear of temptation, lest they be driven ashore and broken to pieces. You will notice that this text concludes with a reference to two well-known figures in the early church who made shipwreck of their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. These were evidently teachers in the church who went off course and were wrecked as a result. Paul will mention Hymenaeus again in 2 Timothy 2.16 and following, saying, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So we know that Hymenaeus erred in his teaching, saying that the resurrection had already happened, and we know that this was accompanied by ungodliness, as is often the case. Unsound doctrine often leads to ungodly living. And it may be the same for Alexander, who is, a mention, who is mentioned again in 2 Timothy 4.14, where Paul simply says, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Here in our text, these two are set forth as an example of teachers in the church who failed to hold on to faith and a good conscience. They made a shipwreck of their faith. And Paul adds that he handed these over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. To be handed over to Satan is to be put out of the church, which is the kingdom of Christ, and to be banished to the world, which is the domain of Satan. And the objective, you will notice, is that those who are put out will come to repentance. In the case of Hymenaeus and Alexander, these needed to learn, Paul says, not to blaspheme against God, not to to speak evil of God in Christ, not to distort the word of God and to live a life of hypocrisy. They needed to learn not to blaspheme. And I think in reminding Timothy of Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul was encouraging Timothy, one, to not go the way that they went, but to keep his faith and his way of life pure. And two, Paul was reminding Timothy of what must be done with those who persist in false teaching or in sin, They must be, to quote now from 1 Corinthians 5, 5, handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You will notice that in both 1 Timothy 1, 20 and 1 Corinthians 5, 5, the stated purpose of putting the person out of the church and thereby banishing them to the realm of the evil one is so that they might turn from their sin for the salvation of their souls. The same thing could be said regarding that famous church discipline passage that is found in Matthew chapter 18. The goal of church discipline, even the goal of excommunication, is to gain the brother or the sister in Christ who is now sinning. That is always our objective, not to punish for the sake of punishment, but to hand over to Satan or to put out of the church so that the person might be one to Christ, so that the person might persevere in the faith that they profess. I think one very concerning thing about the modern church is that very few churches do the hard work of church discipline. In the early days of the Reformation, 
or the reformers wrestled with the question, how do we identify a true church? That was a very important question for them. We are to remember that they had broken away from the Roman church. And for a long time, the question, how do we know what the true church is, was answered in this way. Well, is your local congregation under the pope and the bishops and that authority structure that has been established? If so, you are a true church. If not, you are a false church. Things probably seemed a little bit more clear-cut under that system, but it's an unbiblical system. But the reformers, having broken away from Rome, had to wrestle with the question, well, then how do we identify a true church? And the reformers eventually, especially the later reformers, identified three marks of a true church. They identified uh, the true preaching of the word of God as a mark of the true church. They also identified uh, the right administration of the sacraments as a mark or a characteristic of a true church. And in the later Reformation, they also identified discipline as the third mark of a true church. A true church engages in church discipline. Without church discipline, what are we except a preaching hall? This is not a preaching hall, brothers and sisters. This is a church, and the New Testament scriptures are so clear about the issue of discipline. The church is to be kept pure. False teaching and sin is to be addressed within the church. Both members and ministers must do their part. There is formative church discipline, wherein we naturally exhort and encourage one another to believe what is true and to walk in a manner that is worthy. That is organic, I might say. It is formative church discipline. That is us just living life together and saying, brother or sister, pursue Christ with everything that is in you. Persevere in him. That is good, formative church discipline. But there is also formal church discipline. That formal church discipline takes place when members persist in sin or in unbelief. This may involve public admonition. This may involve suspension from the Lord's table. It may even involve excommunication, which is what Paul describes here when he speaks of handing these two over to Satan. But pay very careful attention to this, brothers and sisters. The motive is love. The motive for discipline, both formative and formal, is love. Love for God and love for one another. And the goal is always repentance and restoration. Why should we trouble ourselves with church discipline? Why should we trouble ourselves with it? Well, one, because we love God. We seek to live in obedience to his word, and his word clearly speaks to these things. And two, because we sincerely love one another. The goal is not to drive away, but to restore through repentance. And so we must be faithful to do what the scriptures call us to do, trusting that the Lord is able to use even excommunication to bring an erring brother or sister to their senses. It is not difficult to understand how this might work. A brother or sister may be presuming upon the grace of God, but only come to see their heir. Once they are put out of the church and barred from the ministry of the word, participation in the Lord's table, and from the sweet fellowship that is enjoyed within the Christian church, it may be that only by being put out from all of this, they come to see the error of their ways. 
Look at what I've been separated from. Truly, I have, I have gone astray in such a bad way. I'm living now in the domain of, of the evil one himself, and I have no access to God and to the things of God. It is a powerful thing that the church does when it excommunicates a member. And we must do it for love of God and for love of, of man, for, for love of our fellow brother or sister in Christ. At least they have professed to be. And so we are to be faithful to the Scriptures, trusting that the Lord will work through these means that he has prescribed Brothers and sisters, when we publicly admonish a member or when we as a church decide to bar someone from the Lord's table or even to excommunicate, I I hope and pray that you do not forget to intercede for that one who has been admonished, that you pray fervently for their soul, that you pray that the Lord would have mercy upon them and graciously bring them to repentance and that they would be restored amongst us. I, I fear that so many who practice church discipline do it badly, that they put a man out almost as just a form of punishment only. Is it that? No, but it's putting them out saying they are walking as an unbeliever, but we are praying for them fervently that the Lord would restore them in due time. There are so many applications to be drawn from this text, brothers and sisters. If you are in the ministry now, serving as an elder within Christ's church, then I think you have a lot to think about considering um, this passage and even the previous chapter here in 1 Timothy 1 as we consider the work of the ministry, what a man is called to when he enters into the ministry. You say, who is he talking to now? I'm talking to myself, but I'm also talking to my fellow elders. We have a lot to think about as we consider Paul's letter to Timothy, his co-worker in gospel ministry. And the same is true for those who feel called to the ministry. You also have much to think about. How important it is for you to consider the scriptures carefully so that you might know what the qualifications and responsibilities of ministers are. I will continue to pray that the Lord would call internally and subjectively men from amongst this congregation into the Christian ministry. But think carefully about what the scriptures say about ministry And church members also must know what the scriptures say about this. They must know so that they can pray for their ministers currently and also so that they might know what to look for when it comes time to appoint others to this office. But even beyond this, much of what has been said today concerning ministers may be applied by you as you fulfill God's call upon your life. No matter what the Lord has called you to, You also must be prepared to engage in warfare. And you also must be sure to hold faith and a good conscience, lest you make a shipwreck of your faith, as Hymenaeus and this Alexander did. May it never be. May we all stay the course so that in the end, we hear the words, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we pray your blessing upon your church. We pray that you would bless the officers and members within this congregation, that all would fight the good fight, that all would keep faith in a clear conscience before you, Lord. Father, I pray that you would protect us from the danger of shipwreck, but that we would walk in a manner that is worthy, that we would be sober, that we would be vigilant, vigilant, in our way of life, that we would be aware of the enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Lord, may we never underestimate him. May we never overestimate ourselves, but may we live 
in constant dependence upon you, God, to preserve us to the end. Father, help us to persevere in the faith. We ask that you would do this for our good, of course, but also so that you might bring glory to your most holy name in and through your church that you have redeemed with the blood of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.